Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, February 27th, 2023, the 768th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So there was no show on Friday because on Thursday afternoon, I traveled to southern Arizona to attend a memorial service for my grandfather who passed at the glorious age of 95. He was a absolutely wonderful man, and I am sad that I did not get to spend more time with him. He passed peacefully a few weeks ago, but I wanted to be there, of course, to be with my parents for the memorial service and as they tended to his affairs. And in traveling out to Arizona, I had the 
disconcerting experience of traveling twice through Bush International Airport in Houston, which is a very big, very modern airport. It's very high tech, very clean, almost sterile. It kind of looks futuristic in a very dystopian way, unless you are obsessed with technology. And in that case, you probably think it's the greatest thing ever. And there are a few airports like this now in global cities, quote unquote, in the United States. San Francisco's airport is a lot like this. And I'm sure there are some others, but it's not like that old style airport where it's all kind of set up like a bus station. Everyone just sitting around on the rows of seats until they call you for boarding and then you get on the plane and you're gone. These airports seem like they are specifically designed for our new normal in the technocratic dystopia. There are comfortable seats everywhere with tables. You can sit down and relax and be on your laptop or your iPad or charge your phone. There are outlets everywhere using, I'm sure, the cleanest energy in the world. And on each and every one of those tables, there is a tablet with a QR code on it so that you can put your phone up to it and your phone and the tablet can get married for a little while. They have them near each gate. They have those tablets at each seat of every restaurant or at every table. And you go into these big restaurants that are very clean, very modern, very new. You think, oh, this place probably serves a nice meal. And you go look at the menu. You can't avoid the QR code, and I do. But you can look at the menu online and order online. Everything is insanely overpriced, of course. You're basically paying for the experience of ordering on a tablet and feeling like everything is very good and very high tech, but the food sucks and there's absolutely no service whatsoever. Again, this is the technocratic dystopia, the new normal that you get to participate in as you travel. They're setting everyone up so that they can be perfectly socially distanced the whole time. And let me tell you, an airport that large is super fun when you have to run to make a connection. I think I logged about a half a mile on Thursday evening, but on the trip back, I was in a much smaller airport in Tucson, Arizona, and it was really odd because there were probably, I don't know, 10%, 15%, maybe 20% of the people wearing masks. I saw a young dad who looked like he was maybe in his late thirties with a six or seven year old kid both of them in N95 masks, entire families in masks, couples in masks. I could not believe how many masks there were, especially in Arizona. But apparently people still do like to let everyone else know that they are the heroes and they are committed to saving your life, even if you're not committed to saving theirs. And I guess they just haven't gotten the memo yet that what they're doing is absolutely pointless and Everyone knows it now. The entire COVID narrative at this point has basically fallen apart, even for the most committed COVID superfans. Even the New York Times is accepting that mask mandates did absolutely nothing and that masks don't work. 
This is from the New York Times on February 21st. The opinion writer, Brett Stevens, who is like their house conservative, in quotes, of course, the headline, the mask mandates did nothing. Will any lessons be learned? The most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19, was published late last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is its lead author, were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that they, masks, make any difference, he told the journalist Marianne DeMasi, full stop. Got that? Oxford epidemiologist says there is just no evidence that they make any difference. Full stop. But wait, hold on. What about N95 masks as opposed to lower quality surgical or cloth masks? Makes no difference. None of it, said Jefferson. What about the studies that initially persuaded policymakers to impose mask mandates? Jefferson says they were convinced by non-randomized studies, flawed observational studies. What about the utility of masks in conjunction with other preventative measures, such as hand hygiene, physical distancing, or air filtration? There's no evidence that many of these things make any difference. These observations don't come from just anywhere. Jefferson and 11 colleagues conducted the study for Cochrane, a British nonprofit that is widely considered the gold standard for its reviews of healthcare data. The conclusions were based on 78 randomized controlled trials, six of them during the COVID pandemic, with a total of 610,872 participants in multiple countries. And they track what has been widely observed in the United States. States with mask mandates fared no better against COVID than those without. No study or study of studies is ever perfect. Science is never absolutely settled. What's more, the analysis does not prove that proper masks properly worn had no benefit at an individual level. People may have good personal reasons to wear masks and they may have the discipline to wear them consistently. Their choices are their own. You see, you got to put that stuff in if you're the New York Times. Otherwise, the readers completely freak out. They try to bring up some extreme fringe case where the mask might provide the slightest possible benefit to someone. And then if you shrug or accept their terms in any possible way, they extrapolate that to what could be done if everybody did exactly the thing mentioned in their little fringe case. And in that case, they would have been right and the whole world would have been saved from COVID, except that there's actually not a fringe case for wearing masks either. This is just something that writers in the New York Times say because they can't say, hey, we lied to you that whole time. But when it comes to the population level benefits of masking, the verdict is in mask mandates were a bust. Those skeptics who were furiously mocked as cranks and occasionally censored as misinformers for opposing mask mandates were right. The mainstream experts and pundits who supported mandates were wrong. In a better world, it would behoove the latter group to acknowledge their error, along with its considerable physical, psychological, pedagogical and political costs. Very bold, Brett Stevens, very bold. It's also interesting that you note that these people were censored occasionally. No, we were censored constantly all the time. In fact, many of us were totally deplatformed while arguing about things like masks. 
But about those lunatics taking responsibility for their behavior, Brett Stevens says don't count on it. In congressional testimony this month, Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, called into question the Cochrane analysis's reliance on a small number of COVID-specific randomized controlled trials and insisted that her agency's guidance on masking in schools wouldn't change. If she ever wonders why respect for the CDC keeps falling, she could look to herself and resign and leave it to someone else to reorganize her agency. And it's important to notice that she really did make that case and really did claim that somehow COVID is different. Sure, all the tests for masking during COVID said masks don't work. And all the tests for stuff other than COVID say masks don't work. But she wants you to think that the sample size for the tests during COVID, that was just too small. It's not decisive. And about Walensky resigning, Stevens says that too probably won't happen. We no longer live in a culture in which resignation is seen as the honorable course for public officials who fail in their jobs. And maybe that's because to Rochelle Walensky and the CDC and the people who constructed this larger agenda, Walensky didn't fail. In fact, every time she continues to pretend that the CDC's guidance and recommendations and mandates were actually the right move and still are the right move. That is Walensky doing a good job from that perspective. But the costs go deeper. When people say they trust the science, what they presumably mean is that science is rational, empirical, rigorous, receptive to new information, sensitive to competing concerns and risks. Also, humble, transparent, open to criticism, honest about what it doesn't know, willing to admit error. And of course, the science is none of those things. The CDC's increasingly mindless adherence to its masking guidance is none of those things. It isn't merely undermining the trust it requires to operate as an effective public institution. It is turning itself into an unwitting accomplice to the genuine enemies of reason and science, conspiracy theorists and quack cure peddlers by so badly representing the values and practices that science is supposed to exemplify. It's crazy that Brett Stevens still doesn't realize that the conspiracy theorists were right the whole time. And the quack cure peddlers, is he referring to people who talked about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? Because they were right too. It also betrays the technocratic mindset that has the unpleasant habit of assuming that nothing is ever wrong with the bureaucracy's well-laid plans, provided nobody gets in the way. Nobody has a dissenting point of view. Everyone does exactly what it asks and for as long as officialdom demands. This is the mentality that once believed that China provided a highly successful model for pandemic response. Yet there was never a chance that mask mandates in the United States would get anywhere close to 100% compliance, or that people would or could wear masks in a way that would meaningfully reduce transmission. Part of the reason is specific to American habits and culture, part of it to constitutional limits on government power, part of it to human nature, part of it to competing social and economic necessities, part of it to the evolution of the virus itself. Oh, that's solid, Brett, but you're missing the real point, which is that masks don't have any mechanism by which they could work. And no, not even the N95s properly worn. 
because wearing an N95 properly means you're not wearing it all the time. You're not just supposed to wear an N95 all day long. They're supposed to be new and clean and perfectly fitted to your face. The idea that these masks could even work for viruses studied in labs where they wear entire suits to protect themselves is pretty preposterous. But whatever the reason, mask mandates were a fool's errand from the start. They may have created a false sense of safety and thus permission to resume a semi-normal life. They did almost nothing to advance safety itself. The Cochrane report ought to be the final nail in this particular coffin. There's a final lesson. The last justification for masks is that even if they proved to be ineffective, they seemed like a relatively low cost, intuitively effective way of doing something against the virus in the early days of the pandemic. But do something is not science and it shouldn't have been public policy. And the people who had the courage to say as much deserve to be listened to, not treated with contempt. They may not ever get the apology they deserve, but vindication ought to be enough. Hey, Brett, it's not enough. And thanks for saying this almost three years later, but still no amnesty. And that includes for you. Also, you have to love the caveat, the early days of the pandemic, the early days of the quote unquote pandemic were in the fall of 2019. And we didn't do a single damn thing for four months, five months. And even then what we did wasn't masking. They didn't start with the mask mandates until what? April, May of 2020. We're talking five or six months of the very deadly virus being in our midst with not a single mitigation undertaken in any way. There was never any justification for wearing masks whatsoever, much less mask mandates. And yet outlets like the New York Times told us that maybe we should anyway, and if we didn't, then we were killing people's grandma. Also, if I'm not mistaken, I believe today is the three-year anniversary of Anthony Fauci saying on 60 Minutes that masks will not help, that they may catch a stray droplet, but that otherwise they were absolutely useless in stopping the spread of an aerosolized respiratory virus. Thank you so much, New York Times, for recognizing what everyone has known the entire time and what Anthony Fauci said on national television three years ago. But that's not the only part of the COVID narrative completely disintegrating into nothing. Yesterday, the Wall Street Journal had this headline, Lab Leak, Most Likely Origin of COVID-19 Pandemic. U.S. Agency Now Says, Oh, Again, the same thing that was known three years ago now gets to be true again. How exciting. The U.S. Energy Department has concluded that the COVID pandemic most likely arose from a laboratory leak, according to a classified intelligence report recently provided to the White House and key members of Congress. The shift by the Energy Department, which previously was undecided on how the virus emerged is noted in an update to a 2021 document by director of national intelligence avril haynes's office the new report highlights how different parts of the intelligence community have arrived at disparate judgments about the pandemic's origin 
The Energy Department now joins the Federal Bureau of Investigation in saying the virus likely spread via a mishap at a Chinese laboratory. Four other agencies, along with a national intelligence panel, still judge that it was likely the result of a natural transmission. And two are undecided. You see, they still just don't know. Now, it's absolutely true that the Trump administration already had more than enough intelligence to know the origin of the virus back in 2020. But that's just not enough scientific proof for the pro-science, illegitimate Biden administration. You see, when you really, really trust the science harder than anyone, and it seems like the science is saying something you don't want the science to say. All you need to say is, I'm still waiting on the rest of the science <laughs> because surely more science will come in later that backs up the theory that the virus emerged from a bat cave and then ended up in the Wuhan wet market a few blocks away from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where dual use research of concern was being funded by Anthony Fauci and the NIH through EcoHealth Alliance. But the science hasn't accepted that's true yet. And you know what? This article doesn't fully accept it either. The Energy Department made its judgment with low confidence. According to people who have read the classified report, you see, some people read the report, then they talked about the classified information to the news, and they've expressed that the report expresses low confidence in what everybody knew three years ago. The FBI previously came to the conclusion that the pandemic was likely the result of a lab leak in 2021 with moderate confidence and still holds to this view. Thanks, FBI, for being slightly more confident than the Energy Department. The FBI employs a cadre of microbiologists, immunologists, and other scientists, and is supported by the National Bioforensic Analysis Center, which was established at Fort Detrick, Maryland in 2004 to analyze anthrax and other possible biological threats. And that's probably all they do at Fort Detrick is just analyze things. Thank goodness the FBI is involved. U.S. officials declined to give details on the fresh intelligence and analysis that led the Energy Department to change its position. They added that while the Energy Department and the FBI each say an unintended lab leak is most likely, they arrived at those conclusions for different reasons. The updated document underscores how intelligence officials are still putting together the pieces on how COVID-19 emerged. More than one million Americans have died in the pandemic. That began more than three years ago. And isn't it interesting how they've changed the language here? They died in the pandemic. It's kind of a nice little way to elide the with COVID versus from COVID distinction without anyone ever noticing. The National Intelligence Council, which conducts long-term strategic analysis and four agencies, which officials declined to identify, still assess with low confidence that the virus came about through natural transmission from an infected animal, according to the updated report. Isn't that amazing? So a bunch of intelligence agencies, which can't be identified, still believe that it came from a bat cave and someone who read the classified report a nameless person 
told the Wall Street Journal, this is just how it is. Some people still believe it's from a bat cave. Therefore, we can never know for sure. The Central Intelligence Agency and another agency that officials wouldn't name remain undecided between the lab leak and natural transmission theories. The people who have read the classified report said, despite the agency's differing analyses, the update reaffirmed an existing consensus between them that COVID-19 wasn't the result of a Chinese biological weapons program. The people who have read the classified report said, So the article goes on. You're more than welcome to go read it in the Wall Street Journal. It is archived from behind the paywall, and you can find it in the info stream at t.me slash I'm your moderator. But the point is, there's still no way to know where the virus came from. Was it the Batcave? Maybe. That's what some unnamed agencies think. Was it from the lab? That's what other agencies think, but with low confidence. And then some agencies say it might be one, but it also might be the other. The point is, you're not allowed to know. And then things got even worse for COVID superfans over the weekend. And it happened right in the comfort and safety of their own homes. On Saturday Night Live, of all places. And everybody knows that the only people who still watch Saturday Night Live are COVID superfans. So how could they? This is from Woody Harrelson's monologue. Okay, so the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes and people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is going to believe that crazy idea of being forced to do drugs? I do that voluntarily all day long. Now, that made people very, very mad because Woody Harrelson seems to be talking about the vaccines and about the COVID narrative and about what people were made to do. They were told they had to remain locked in their homes. And once the pharma companies produced their product, then maybe, maybe they could come out if they took the pharma company's product enough times. Now, these are things that we've been saying for well over two years, and we've been censored for saying these things, too. We're just not allowed to say them. And part of the reason why society at large has accepted this censorship and all of these false narratives is because the media outlets they believe are on their side, the media outlets they believe they can trust, like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and, for instance, Rolling Stone, were justifying that whole agenda in their articles, and they still are. Rolling Stone wrote an article yesterday with the headline, Woody Harrelson spreads anti-vax conspiracies during SNL monologue and other regime propaganda outlets followed suit as you might expect. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. spotted this and noted on Twitter that these outlets really legitimately are the mouthpiece of global intelligence. He linked an article from December 9th, 2021 On his website, childrenshealthdefense.org, the headline was part one, CIA's extraordinary role influencing liberal media outlets, Daily Kos, 
The Daily Beast, and Rolling Stone. It begins by discussing how much RFK Jr. has been attacked by Big Pharma for his stance on various vaccines. So I'm going to pick this up in the middle. The liberal metamorphosis appears so complete that Public Citizen, an advocacy group that once served as a scourge to Big Pharma, is using its tax-deductible legal assets to defend Daily Coast pro bono against Kennedy's lawsuit. Daily Coast's support of censoring debate about the government's COVID countermeasures belies Public Citizen's rationale that its passion for defending the First Amendment prompted its decision to defend Daily Coast. So how did the pharma cartel capture the liberal media? The abduction has been multifaceted. In his new book, Kennedy shows how pharma's deployment of $9.6 billion in annual advertising expenditures allows it to dictate content in electronic and print outlets, transforming the traditional liberal networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN into marketing and propaganda vehicles. With $319 million in strategic donations, Bill Gates simultaneously gained control of so-called independent media outlets like NPR, Public Television, The Guardian, and dozens of other advertising-free liberal news outlets that can now be used to promote a biosecurity agenda generally and Gates' vaccines in particular. This has been well-documented in publications ranging from the Los Angeles Times in 2007 to The Nation in 2020 and 2021. It should be noted here that NPR and public television aren't independent media outlets. They're state media. That's what the word public means. My investigation suggests that Pharma and Gates have a powerful clandestine partner that has made the medical industrial complex's media hegemony airtight through their apparent penetration of leading liberal online news sites. It is also well documented, though often forgotten, that since its inception more than 70 years ago, the CIA has orchestrated news and editorial coverage in America's most influential liberal national news organs, the Washington Post, the New York Times and Time magazine. These outlets continue to hew faithfully to CIA theology on globalism, biosecurity, coerced vaccinations, Russiagate, a militarized foreign policy, censorship, lockdowns, vaccine passports, digitized currencies, and other issues. My investigation for the Defender indicates that Kennedy's most vitriolic critics among the liberal online journals may themselves have also fallen under the sway of the intelligence apparatus. In The Real Anthony Fauci, Kennedy exposes pharma's alarming entanglements with the CIA, bioweapons developers, medical technocrats, and the Silicon Valley robber barons. My own research has revealed that military and intelligence agencies enjoy disturbing links to the leading editors of Daily Coast, The Daily Beast, and Rolling Stone that may explain why these journals have lately devolved into ideological commissars for the pharmaceutical cartel's official orthodoxies, champions of the biosecurity paradigm, and censors against critics of the biosecurity state. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago in the discussion around Trump's promotion of the death penalty, Rolling Stone is an ideal outlet for this sort of takeover because people believe that Rolling Stone isn't primarily a political outlet. It's about music and pop culture. It is a cool magazine. 
And because it's cool, it's seen to be sort of counterculture. And because it's counterculture, it can't be working for the man. So when they are promoting things like vaccines in the pages of Rolling Stone or losing their minds about how evil Donald Trump is with his death penalty agenda, the readers of Rolling Stone believe this is the cool position to take. So it's good that some of these highly protected narratives are now being broken apart completely and that the counter narratives that were censored for the last three years are breaking through to the mainstream. But none of these are full refutations of the original narrative, and all of them are still protecting the people who spread those original narratives. Fine, masks didn't work, but it wasn't bad that we did it. It was just wrong. And sure, controlling people's lives in order to force them into taking pharmaceutical products is a profit-making scam for Big Pharma, but it's not like he said that they are actually killing people and that they don't work and that they were never necessary in the first place. And sure, there are some government agencies that know the virus came from the lab in China, but we can't be sure. We can never be sure. And the timing of this new position on China that is now allowed in the mainstream, this movement toward blaming China for COVID comes at an interesting time as the regime begins to ramp up for a war effort to protect Taiwan from a Chinese invasion, just like they protected Ukraine from a Russian invasion. The Ukraine war is not working out great. They're going to need another war. It's going to be Taiwan, as everyone's been talking about for years. So, yeah, the regime and their propaganda mouthpieces in the mainstream media and public health and academia and corporations and everyone else have protected the CCP for the entire time. In fact, they've protected the CCP for decades while profiting off of cheap Chinese labor, which is a convenient euphemism for slave labor. But now all of a sudden, it's okay to say bad things about China right as they're getting ready to launch a war effort against China in order to protect a sovereign democracy in Taiwan, which is actually just part of China, especially according to China and Unfortunately, theirs is the only vote that really matters in that situation. But now we're going to get China. This is just the news this morning. House China panel to kick off with ex-Trump officials on fending off Beijing bid for global primacy. Former Trump administration officials will testify before the House Select Committee on China on Tuesday evening in the panel's first formal hearing. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy pledged to form a select committee on China in the run-up to the 2022 midterm elections. Wisconsin Republican Representative Mike Gallagher is serving as chairman of the committee, and Illinois Democratic Rep Raja Krishnamurthy is the ranking member. Former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger, Wei Jing Shang, a human rights activist, and Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, are all expected to testify, according to Gallagher's office. 
The Alliance for American Manufacturing wrote on Twitter that Paul will discuss the importance of limiting the CCP's influence on our economy at Tuesday's hearing. In a December op-ed, Gallagher and McCarthy outlined the mission of the new select committee, which included restoring supply chains, ending, quote, critical economic dependencies on China, strengthening the military, ending the Chinese government's, quote, theft of American personal data and intellectual property, and contrasting the Chinese Communist Party's techno-totalitarian state with the values of the free world. Gallagher just returned from a trip to Taiwan. The vulnerability of a potential invasion from China is a major issue the committee is expected to focus on in a future hearing. I can tell you that the time to arm Taiwan to the teeth was yesterday, he said, reflecting on the trip. And so as much as I would like to think that the House Republicans are going to make progress in this committee vis-a-vis China, I'm not convinced that this committee won't be primarily an opportunity for the regime to continually make the case for war with China over Taiwan. So while the House Select Committee on China begins their work tomorrow, the Oversight Committee is considering subpoenas for their investigation into Hunter Biden and his father, the fake President Joe Biden's political corruption around the world. The GOP oversight account on Twitter tweeted, the Treasury Department is obstructing our investigation into the Biden family's business schemes. We are done with the excuses. Representative James Comer is calling on the U.S. Treasury to testify on March 10th about the department's failure to produce documents. And they attach Comer's letter to the Treasury Department. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've gotten reports that one of Hunter Biden's business associates, a man named Eric Schwerin, has flipped and will be testifying about his role in the Biden's corrupt dealings. And just the news is John Solomon joined Steve Bannon this morning to discuss. Politico has this huge story up this morning about how the Democrats can't get their messaging right on China on the CCP, and, they, and they're pointing to Biden. He can't get it right. Well, John Solomon, I think one of the reasons he can't get it right might have something to do with their business activity and their financial compromise. You've got a story up on, on Just the News about, and I think this gives the hesitancy for why he hasn't announced definitively on the yeah. run for the presidency, right, which he wanted to do in Ukraine or around the Ukraine anniversary. Solomon, he's got some choppy waterhead because of people who are coming forward. Am I incorrect on that, sir? You are 100% correct. And let's remember, he started his 2020 campaign in the fall of 2019, looking into the camera and saying, China is not our enemy. They're not our competition. They're not bad people. He was wrong on all three accounts. And at the moment he said it, all the intelligence, including the things that the Pacific uh, Fleet admirals were saying, what the CIA was saying, was clearly contradicting that. So why would Joe Biden make a statement that is clearly not supported by the moment of intelligence that he made it in because his family had so much to profit from in China. CEFC, uh, the Hennages turning over of an American automaker manufacturer with sensitive technology. Hunter gives that to, helps the Chinese get their hands on that. The investment deal aboard Air Force Two in, in 2013. The Biden family has been over a barrel on China for most of the last decade. And it all began, it all begins with a conversation that Hunter, uh, that Joe Biden 
had with Hunter Biden's business partner, a guy named Eric Schwerwin, who is now cooperating with uh, uh, Comer's committee. This is a big, major witness who has flipped to the Republican side. In 2010, he's only a year into his vice presidency, Joe Biden, according to the email that Eric Schwerwin sends Hunter Biden in the spring of 2010, Joe Biden wants to explore his earnings potential. Though he's in the White House, he's looking to score uh, some private money, and it's that conversation that sets Hunter Biden to Russia, to China, to Ukraine, to Kazakhstan, uh, to Romania, looking for money that the Biden family can cash in. And the great honeypot they hit is China. Two names you've been bringing up, but it, 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 Bobolinsky and Sh- it was a Sharon. Sh- Sharon. Sharon this, yeah, Sharon's Sharon, the right. lawyer. Of Sh- Sharon. Why is he? Why is he such a big deal? And if you're the, if you, and this, by the way, this, this is why Abby Lowell and these guys do these ridiculous letters out to us. The, the, the team, you know, the laptop from hell team trying, trying to right. back us off. She's <laughs> not going to back off. Yeah. But now you see what their strategy is. This must chill them. This must, this must chill them to the core of their being of who they hear are cooperating with the house. John Solomon. Yeah, Eric Schwerwin was the president of Rosemont Seneca, the main firm that Hunter Biden ran most of his foreign business deals through. And he's at the intersection of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. He's one of the few Hunter Biden business partners that has regular contact with Joe Biden. In 2010, he's uh, telling Hunter Biden the bills that Joe Biden uh, had paid by Hunter. Hunter actually pays some of Joe Biden's bills, uh, funnels some of that business money to cover Joe Biden's bills. Eric Schwerin creates a nice email that lays out all the different things that Joe Biden got benefit from his son. In uh, the summer of 2010, uh, he's helping do Joe Biden's taxes in addition to Hunter Biden's taxes. And he says, your dad owes you money. He's deferring his Delaware tax refund to your account. That email's in there. Joe Biden giving money back to his son. They did commingle their finances. By 2015, he's the guy in the middle trying to help Hunter Biden score this deal with CEFC, the big China energy firm. He's the guy that tells Hunter Biden Biden, hey, in 2016, you didn't pay your taxes on all that money you collected in Ukraine from Burisma Holdings. We got to get right on that. You need to declare the income and make a payment. He's at the intersection of Hunter Biden's taxes, Joe Biden's taxes, and many of the foreign business deals. And his cooperation with James Comer and the House Oversight Committee is a really big deal. Comer said he could be one of the most substantial witnesses that the committee uses as a roadmap for figuring out how the influence peddling scheme went on inside the Biden family. So Hunter's business partner, Eric Schwerin, which for some reason no one can say his name, seems to be, we're told, ready to help the House Republican Committee in their investigation of the Biden family's corruption and criminality. We know that Tony Bobolinsky has been helping for years now. He was interviewed by Tucker Carlson even before the 2020 election. He was one of Hunter Biden's business partners. He had direct knowledge of the business dealings. His emails do appear on the laptop and he has verified the content of those emails. And then there's also at least some indication that Hunter's business partner, Devin Archer, has or will flip as well. But let's move to a different part of the global agenda. This is from Real Clear Markets. And the article is from last week. The headline is ESG could mire already strained 401k plans. 
The Department of Labor's new rule permitting retirement plan fiduciaries to weigh and prioritize environmental, social and governance factors for investment decisions and shareholder rights is being lauded by the Biden administration. But millions of Americans won't be celebrating this move after risky investment strategies drain their 401k savings accounts. The DOL rule stems from a May 2021 executive order mandating a whole of government approach to assess physical risks posed by climate change on critical financial decisions. This consequential rule will amend the Employee Retirement Income Security Act to, quote, protect life savings and pensions of America's workers and families from the threats of climate related financial risk, end quote by reversing the, quote, chilling effects that were wrought by a 2020 Trump administration rule. So to be clear here, what's happening is that they are accepting as true the entirety of the climate change narrative. And the response is to control how businesses operate. Businesses have to go along with whatever the climate change lunatics say, or else they won't get investment from the global regime. The global regime will actually limit the investment money in their businesses as a result of them not complying with these standards handed down from places like the World Economic Forum. So what they're doing is picking and choosing who wins and loses in the quote unquote free market and ridiculous liberals like Marianne Williamson who believes that she's going to be a presidential candidate for some reason. She thinks that this is all a problem of hyper capitalism. You see, because it can never be global communism. It can never be socialism. It can never be government control that's destroying markets. It's an effect of capitalism itself. But this isn't capitalism. This is the global state controlling which businesses sink and which ones swim. If you comply with the global regime's agenda, they will make you wealthy. If you don't comply with their agenda, your business is going to be destroyed. And they justify this massive abuse of power under the guise of saving the world from climate change. 152 million Americans, or two-thirds of the U.S. population, will see their retirement funds, estimated to be valued at $10 trillion, jeopardized by ESG considerations. The primary goal of retirement plans, much like general investment strategies, is to maximize return on investments, not stray away from this intended goal. Adding stressors like ESG will threaten existing accounts with depreciating funds and create more unnecessary financial risk. The new Labor Department rule may even be in violation of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, a law that protects and insulates individuals' retirement accounts from risks like that brought by ESG. 25 attorneys general led by Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes allege the Department of Labor is inviting more risk by allowing 401k managers, in essence, to promote non-monetary benefits in personal investment decisions. By injecting controversial considerations into investment funds that have no bearing on maximizing return on investments, money managers who lean on this new guidance for investment strategies will further imperil vulnerable 401k plans to more economic shocks. 
The biggest threat to retirement savings accounts is policymaking that threatens holdings, not climate change. These plans took a major dive last year, in large part due to runaway inflation wrought by trillions in spending by Biden administration policies. Overall, account holders who traded in stocks have seen diminished returns since President Joe Biden entered office. That's no coincidence. When also accounting for astronomical rates of inflation, the value of savings bonds, which comprise 20 to 40 percent of total investments, also diminished due to higher interest rates wrought by runaway inflation. The average account balance depreciated from one hundred twenty six thousand one hundred dollars in quarter three of twenty twenty one to ninety seven thousand two hundred dollars the same time last year or a twenty two point nine percent decrease. On average, Americans have lost $34,000 in savings. Given how 401k plans have reacted to stressors in the market, one cannot put too much faith in ESG funds because they perform exceptionally poorly compared to non-ESG index funds. A joint study conducted by Columbia University and the London School of Economics also determined ESG funds portfolio firms don't outperform non-ESG fund portfolio firms, with the former having, quote, significantly more violations of labor and environmental laws and pay more in fines for these violations relative to non-ESG funds issued by the same financial institutions. And that's pretty crazy. So not only are they not fulfilling their only purpose, which is maximizing profit, they're also in violation of more labor and environmental laws. Kind of makes you think the whole ESG thing is a racket and there's another agenda involved. In late 2022, many oft-touted ESG funds experienced outflows as investors recognized it's more prudent to preserve capital over seeking out funds that prioritized controversial political or social aims. As a result, investors recognize ESG funds will continue to languish against actions by the Federal Reserve, for example, hiking interest rates to stave off inflation. Why would managers direct their clients' money to retirement funds that weigh climate or social risks, since ESG funds deliver a terrible rate of return? It's too risky to hedge your savings on index funds with diminishing bad returns. Much to the chagrin of the Biden administration, money managers are increasingly souring on ESG as an investment philosophy. States have similarly divested billions in assets from powerful financial asset managers like BlackRock for discriminating against energy companies and firearms manufacturers. A bipartisan group of lawmakers in Congress, including Senator Joe Manchin, have similarly vowed to challenge and block the Department of Labor's ESG rule for posing a threat to American workers' hard-earned savings. Instead of tarnishing 401k accounts with a flawed and nefarious investment strategy, the Biden administration should immediately reconsider the rule change and allow managers to prioritize risk-adjusted funds for millions of savings account holders. And as mentioned in that article, 25 states are suing the Biden administration. This news actually came out a month ago. This is Fox Business on January 26th. 25 states hit Biden administration with lawsuit over climate action targeting Americans' retirement savings. A group of 25 states on Thursday filed a federal lawsuit against the Biden administration, arguing a recent rule allowing retirement plan managers to factor environmental and social issues into investment decisions violated the law. 
the lawsuit led by Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes and joined by 24 other states, including Louisiana, Texas and Virginia, challenges a Department of Labor rule unveiled in November and which is set to go into effect on January 30th. The rule would open the door for fiduciaries to factor so-called environment, social and governance considerations into Americans' retirement accounts, an action the states argued could significantly harm the financial interests of consumers. And so we'll see how that lawsuit goes and we'll see on the future of this rule. But it's crucial that people understand what's going on here, particularly if you are retired or getting close to your retirement and you are concerned about having money to live for the rest of your life. This is just another step in the pattern that everyone should be able to see by this point. The regime's agenda is to make most people just simply go broke. When they said you will own nothing and you will be happy, they meant you will own nothing. They don't care if you end up happy. They just say that to convince people that they're actually acting in your best interests. They claim that everyone is going to go broke no matter what, just by virtue of the way the world is going, as if it all just occurs naturally. But it's not natural. It's a direct result of their agenda. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. The system is designed to produce certain outcomes. You can watch the system as it works. You can watch the system produce the intended outcomes. Will Hild, the executive director of an organization called Consumers First, wrote this on Twitter today. Huge. Speaker McCarthy and House Republicans are moving to block the Biden administration's new Department of Labor rule, allowing and encouraging asset managers to consider ESG criteria when making retirement investment decisions, the House is expected to vote on the measure this week. And Donald Trump weighed in with a video statement on ESG. I'm very proud that as president, I issued a historic rule banning Wall Street and employers from pouring your 401ks, pensions and retirement accounts into so-called ESG or environmental, social and governance investments. For political reasons, strictly for political reasons, these people are sick. These poorly performing woke financial scams are radical left garbage that would never be funded on their own and certainly never be funded on their own merits. The entire ESG scheme is designed to funnel your retirement money to the maniacs on the radical left. The rule we issued under my leadership was the first ESG ban anywhere in the world. And I'm delighted that Republicans in Congress and across the country have been waking up to this threat and following my lead. Unfortunately, Joe Biden gutted my ESG rule, and now his Department of Labor has declared that fund managers can play politics with our seniors, hard-earned savings, and play it they are. Biden has already crushed your 401ks. If you take a look at the 401ks, when I was there, they were going like a rocket ship straight up, and now they're going like that rocket ship is crashing. But pensions and retirement accounts with his radicalism and incompetence, they're going down and they're going down big, and it's nobody's seen anything like it. With his action and with this action, he's trying to use your money to fund fringe left-wing causes at your expense. You're paying the price for all of this, and it's destroying our country beside. 
When I'm back in the White House, I will sign an executive order and with Congress's support, a law to keep politics away from America's retirement accounts forever. I will demand that funds invest your money to help you, not them, but to help you, not to help the radical left communists, because that's exactly what we are. I will once again protect our seniors, just like I did before, from the woke left. And the woke left is bad news. They destroy countries. Thank you very much. It's a real tough choice there, isn't it? On one hand, you have a president who is actually elected by the citizens of this country, promising to make sure that the people running your retirement investment accounts are focused on actually protecting and growing your wealth. And on the other hand, you have a totally illegitimate president who has no concern for protecting your retirement savings at all and instead is just using them to pressure companies into compliance with the global regime's agenda on climate change, which most people understand by now is something the regime just made up. And finally, last week, toward the end of the week, we began to hear about the very scary white supremacist groups that are apparently just everywhere in the country and how they were planning a day of hate. This is Newsweek on Friday. Neo-Nazi groups organizing anti-Semitic National Day of Hate police warn. Neo-Nazi groups across the United States are planning a National Day of Hate against Jewish communities on Saturday, according to anti-Semitism watchdogs and police documents. According to a leaked internal memo by the New York City Police Department's Intelligence and Counterterrorism Bureau, online organizers are, quote, instructing like-minded individuals to drop banners, place stickers and flyers, or scrawl graffiti as a form of biased so-called action. Jewish groups and police urged Jews to remain vigilant during the Sabbath. There will be additional patrols around synagogues in New York and New Jersey. Researchers at the Counter-Extremism Project, an international policy organization, said on Thursday that extremist groups had been promoting the day of action through telegram posts and identified the National Socialist Movement as one of the organizers. According to the Anti-Defamation League, the National Socialist Movement is the largest neo-Nazi group in the U.S., though it has experienced a decline in membership in recent years. It is currently led by Bert Colucci. The group was behind the recent neo-Nazi demonstration at the opening of Parade, a Broadway show about a Jewish man who was lynched, the CEP said. It stated that two regional chapters in Iowa and California, as well as a small group in New York, were planning to participate in the Day of Hate. Meanwhile, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, citing ADL sources, identified the Crew 319 group in Iowa as behind the call for action. Newsweek reached out to the ADL for comment. Stop Antisemitism, a grassroots watchdog, said the Day of Hate was being, quote, specifically organized and promoted, end quote, by groups including the Goyam Defense League, a parody of the ADL, and one of two far-right groups behind a series of anti-Semitic projections that appeared on buildings in Florida last month. 
The NYPD called for officers to, quote, maintain an elevated situational awareness and vigilance on Saturday for domestic violence extremism, especially around key locations that might garner higher interest from these types of actors. James Gennaro, a Democrat city council member for New York City's 24th district, confirmed that the leaked memo is in fact real, albeit a draft version. He added that he requested additional patrols near synagogues in his district, which covers an area of central Queens. An NYPD spokesperson told Newsweek that, quote, out of an abundance of caution, the department will deploy additional resources to sensitive locations, including houses of worship throughout the weekend. Stop Antisemitism tweeted on Thursday night that it, quote, strongly urges everyone to be vigilant, specifically during synagogue services this Shabbat. In Chicago, the police department's place of worship safety advisory team released a community alert urging members of the public to, quote, keep situationally aware, end quote, end quote, not just on Shabbos, but during the week as well, end quote. Since officers can't be on every street in the city at once, we count on residents to be our additional eyes and ears, it added. David Goldenberg, the ADL's Midwest regional director, told the Chicago Sun-Times that dedicated days of action had become popular among extremist groups in recent years, with footage of stunts used to give the illusion the groups are larger than they actually are. Quote, when in reality, actual participation in these types of events is incredibly small. And the article goes on and on. So what do we have here? We have a leaked draft memo from a division of the New York City Police Department. Now, it's not a formal statement. It's not even a final memo. It's just a draft memo that somehow got leaked to media outlets. And naturally, no one at the NYPD can be held to account for this memo because it was just a draft and it leaked. It was never supposed to go out to the public, you know, because they weren't really sure anything was going to happen. And so the ADL and other globalist advocacy groups that create extremist groups all the time. I mean, most extremist groups are pretty much just the FBI. And I think it's pretty safe to say that at this point. Since they're in the midst of all these groups and right at the forefront for when these extremist groups actually do their extremism. And once these things get released, then all of the blue and on accounts online, many of whom are paid to disseminate propaganda, begin to go wide with this day of hate. And somehow it's MAGA supporters, because in their mind, extremist and MAGA are the same exact things. And these are quote unquote, far right extremist groups, even as they're called the National Socialist Movement. So there's a massive freak out online. Everybody blames the same people who are always blamed for everything. And then it turns out that absolutely nothing happens. And what was supposed to happen on this day of hate? They were going to drop banners and place stickers and flyers or scrawl graffiti which is something that literally anyone can do. It's almost like they were encouraging people to go out and do it so they could then use those instances to blame the people they always blame. But there were zero reports of anyone doing anything. So there were no credible threats at any point and nothing actually ended up happening, but there was still a big media blitz 
to create the impression that there was going to be right wing extremist violence in America this weekend. And the people online freak out and then they just ignore it. They forget about it. They don't realize that the day of hate just didn't happen, which means that it was almost definitely entirely made up absolutely every bit of it. But it doesn't matter because all of the people who hate all of us were just given another rationalization and justification for their hatred because it's a hate movement. As I've said countless times, we talked last week about how Donald Trump was being blamed for the Ohio train derailment on the day he actually went to visit East Palestine, a place that Joe Biden has not gone and has no plans to go. And then yesterday, after the Wall Street Journal article came out saying that the virus came from the lab in Wuhan, the actress and spectacular idiot Alyssa Milano blamed Trump for that, too. It was actually his fault because he had reduced pandemic preparedness. You see, it's always Trump's fault. It's always our fault, no matter what it is, no matter how directly responsible these people are for the problems being discussed. It's still Trump's fault. It's still our fault, no matter what. There's a name for that. It's scapegoating and everyone should recognize it. This has been one of the regime's tactics for a very, very long time because it's the same playbook playing out all over the world at different times over and over and over again as they infiltrate, as they destabilize societies and eventually hope to take over everything. But hey, good luck, commies. No one believes you anymore. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!